That's what it's all about, isn't it? One who is above all things, above all powers, above all thrones, yet one who was willing to think of us above all, like a rose trampled on the ground. Appreciate Ben leading us in that song. That's what we're thinking about in the Gospel of Mark. As we work our way through this book together, we began that study just last week. As we work our way throughout the book of Mark, we want to think about that person. We want to think about the one who was willing to think of us above all. And I hope it's something that's going to be encouraging to us. But before we get to the story of Jesus, we need to talk about somebody else first. So if you have your Bibles, let's go to Mark chapter 1. Mark chapter 1, since we took some time to introduce the book last week, this week we're ready to dive into the text, Mark chapter 1, looking at verses 1 through 8. Mark chapter 1, verses 1 through 8. There was an older lady who decided to try something new. She decided that she was going to try and go, try, try to go to an aerobics class. She had never done it before. She had never thought of herself as being coordinated. She never thought she'd be able to get all the steps, but it was something she was willing to try to do anyway. So the first couple weeks were a little bit rough. She was struggling to get the steps, struggling to do exactly what the class was demanding her to do. But fast forward about five or six weeks, she was starting to feel more and more confident. She was starting to feel like she was getting into her rhythm and getting down the steps. She felt like she was up on the level of everybody else, if not just a little bit above. After one class one week, another lady came up to her and, and said, I, I just have to tell you, you are so coordinated. There was nothing else that could have been said to her that would make her more proud. There was nothing that could have been said to her that would make her feel better. She'd been working so hard on it. So with a big grin, she said, thank you so much. She said, yeah, of course, you're welcome. Your steps still need a little bit of work, but your shirt matches your pants, and your pants match your socks. I'm always amazed at how coordinated you are. It's a compliment. Maybe not the compliment that she expected. Maybe not the compliment that she wanted, but a compliment nonetheless feels good to get a compliment every once in a while, doesn't it? Maybe even sometimes if it's not what you're looking for, if it's not what you're expecting, backhanded compliments exist. When we go to Matthew chapter 11, and we look at verse number 11, Jesus gives John the Baptist a compliment. And in my mind, you can't get any higher than this. You cannot get any higher than the compliment that Jesus gives to his slightly older cousin, John. Notice he says, truly I say to you, in other words, listen up. I'm about to tell you something very important. He says, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Could you imagine receiving a compliment like that? I mean, receiving a compliment like that from another person would be amazing. There has been no one born of women. Well, everybody's born of a woman. There's no, wom there's no woman, there's no man, there's no child who's greater than you are. Wouldn't it feel good to hear that? What if it was Jesus Christ Himself giving you that compliment? What if it was Jesus Christ looking at you and saying, hey, I recognize there's not anybody else out there who is greater than you are. It gives John a pretty amazing compliment in Matthew chapter 11 and verse 11 that there's nobody, no man, no woman, no child who is greater than John the Baptist. 
If Jesus thinks that highly of John the Baptist, do you think we need to spend some time looking at his life? If Jesus thinks that highly, if he's, he's, if he's willing to give such a high compliment to this individual, don't you think we need to spend some time thinking about him? Thinking about his life? Thinking about his ministry? Thinking about who he was? I believe that we do. And that's exactly what we're going to do tonight in the first eight verses of Mark's Gospel. Mark begins his Gospel. Before he gets into the ministry of Jesus, he spends a little bit of time talking about the life and talking about the ministry of John the Baptist. When we pay attention to his life, there are so many things that we're able to learn. There are so many things that we're able to understand that will not only help us in our knowledge, but they will lead us to the very feet of Jesus Christ. And so let's notice a few things about the life of John the Baptist. What does Mark want to point out to us about this individual of whom Jesus says nobody's greater than him? I think the first thing that he wants us to understand in the very first verse of the gospel is that the life, the story, the ministry of John the Baptist is the beginning of the gospel story. Take a second to put yourself in Mark's shoes. If you were going to tell the story of Jesus, where would you start? If, if you were going to tell somebody the story of Christ, if you were going to tell somebody the story of Jesus, at what point would you begin? The different Gospel writers begin in different places. For instance, Matthew begins his Gospel with a genealogy. And after that genealogy, he goes into the details of Jesus' birth in Bethlehem and shows us exactly what that looked like. Luke begins his Gospel after a short introduction with two different birth announcements. The first one is to Zechariah about John the Baptist, who we're talking about tonight. The second one is to Mary about Jesus, how Jesus is going to be born of a virgin. John goes all the way back to the very beginning. You remember how he begins his gospel in the very first verse, John chapter 1 and verse 1? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Notice that Mark is a little bit different than Matthew, Luke, and John. Mark bypasses all of that, even bypasses the birth of Jesus, and he begins his story with the life and the ministry of John the Baptist. As we look at Mark's Gospel, in the very first verse, he says the beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. That's what we're talking about in this book. We're talking about a man named Jesus. Well, what do we need to know about Jesus? He says Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the Anointed One of God, the prophesied priest, king, and prophet who was coming into the world. The one that the Old Testament points to at so many different parts. We need to know that Jesus is the very Son of God. Jesus is the one who has brought the Gospel. The good news of the Gospel finds its source in Jesus. The question is, where does all of that begin in Mark's mind? The Gospel, Jesus, who's the Christ, the Son of God, where does his story begin in Mark's mind? Jesus' story begins with the story of John the Baptist. In fact, in Mark's mind, John the Baptist's story is essential to what we're going to see through this book about Jesus. And so I think the first thing that we need to note about him is that he is the beginning of the gospel story. Maybe sometimes we're guilty of overlooking John the Baptist. If you were to write a story about Jesus, would you even include John the Baptist? Would you include John the Baptist in that narrative? And as I was thinking about that and preparing for this lesson, I'm not sure if I would. 
Sometimes we overlook His life. We overlook His ministry. Mark doesn't want us to do that. He wants us to understand that John's story is the beginning of Jesus' story. This is the beginning of the good news. The beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. If you want to understand Jesus' story, it's essential to understand the story of John the Baptist. And so as we continue, Mark talks to us a little bit about John the Baptist. He says, number two, John the Baptist is one who fulfills Old Testament prophecy in verses 2 and 3. When we talk about Jesus, we oftentimes think about Him as one who fulfills Old Testament prophecy. And we certainly should do that. Jesus is the one who fulfills Old Testament prophecy perfectly. But notice this isn't just about Jesus. This is also about John. Mark, in chapter 1, verses 2 and 3, quotes from two different passages that were written hundreds of years before John was even thought of that point towards his life and his ministry. They're not only pointing towards John, but they're talking about John's purpose. The first one comes from the first half of Malachi chapter 3 and verse 1. This is verse 2. Behold, look, pay attention. I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. What does that tell us about John? First, it tells us that John is a messenger. We're going to find that emphasized throughout this text. For instance, if you look at verse 3, he's the voice of one crying in the wilderness. If you look in verse 4, he's the one who is proclaiming. If you look in verse 7, he is the one who is preaching. John the Baptist is a messenger of the Lord. What's he doing? He's preparing the way for the Lord. Have you ever been to a concert before where you're more than likely paying to see the main act? That's who you want to see. But before the main act comes out, there are a few different bands or a few different singers that come out and and they warm up the crowd. They get the crowd ready for the main act to come out and perform. That might be a good way of thinking about the life and ministry of John the Baptist. He's warming them up for Jesus. He's blazing the trail. He's preparing people's hearts, people's minds, and people's lives for the Messiah to enter into the world and to begin His public ministry. The second passage from the Old Testament that Mark quotes is Isaiah chapter 40 and verse 3. This is verse number 3. He says that John the Baptist is the voice of one crying in the wilderness. That Greek word for wilderness refers to an uninhabited place. Somewhere along the Jordan River is what we're going to find here in just a few minutes. But John is one in the wilderness. He's a voice, a messenger, crying out in this uninhabited place to prepare the way for the Lord. Again, he's preparing people's hearts, preparing people's minds for the coming of Jesus. Make his paths straight. John the Baptist wanted to take paths that were very curvy in the minds of the first century audience and to make those paths straight concerning the coming of the Lord. Something that's just a little bit technical in this text, if you look at verse number 2, notice that both of these quotations are accredited to Isaiah the prophet. Did Mark not know his Old Testament? Did Mark not know that the first part of this quote is from Malachi and the last part of the quote is from Isaiah? Did he mess up here? Is this a blunder from Mark? A lot of people try to spin it that way. But when you look at the first century, it was very common. If you had a quote that was conflated, you would attribute the quote to the more well-known writer, the more popular author. 
And so since Isaiah was more well-known, since he was more popular than Malachi, you have Mark attributing this whole quote to Isaiah. It's not that he didn't know he was quoting both Malachi and Isaiah, and he made a blunder in verse 2 in accrediting the whole thing to Isaiah. That's what they did in their culture. They accredited a quote that was mixed to the author that was more well-known. And that's why he accredits it to Isaiah in Mark chapter 1 and verse number 2. But take just a second to think about how amazing our God is. We have a God who hundreds of years before John was even thought of put these two verses in the Old Testament telling us exactly who He's going to be exactly what He's going to do, exactly what His purpose is, and what His ministry is going to look like. Isn't that awesome? That we have a God who isn't like us. We, see, we can see the past, we can see the present, but we can't see the future. God can. In fact, He can see hundreds of years into the future. We see that in many different ways through Scripture, but one of those ways is Him predicting, here's this messenger, here is this preacher, one who's going to proclaim and prepare the way for the Lord. John the Baptist is the beginning of the Gospel story. He's the one who fulfills Old Testament prophecy. When we look in verses 4 and 5, we see that He is one who exemplified a very powerful ministry. He details John's ministry for us just a little bit in verses 4 and 5. Remember, Mark is a little bit more brief than all of the other gospel accounts. But when you look in verses 4 and 5, John's ministry basically has two facets to it. First, John the Baptist was a preacher. He was one who proclaimed. We see that in verse 4, that he was in the wilderness and he was proclaiming. When you read other sermons from John the Baptist in Matthew, Luke, and John, they go into a little bit more detail about this. You find that John is very bold. It doesn't matter who John is speaking to. It doesn't matter who the audience is. Whether he's talking to Pharisees and Sadducees, whether he's talking to the common person, or whether he's talking to one of uh, the King Herod, one of King Herod's sons, when he looks at him and says, you should not have that woman as your wife. That is not the right thing. He's very bold. He's very passionate. It doesn't matter who's standing in front of him. He's going to be the one who speaks the truth. So first, he was one who proclaimed... But then hand in hand with that, he was one who baptized. Remember, the word baptized means to immerse, literally, in Greek. When we call him John the Baptist, we could equally call him John the Immerser. That's what he did. He baptized. He immersed people in the Jordan River. Mark tells us what that baptism looks like. He says it was a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Whenever... John would baptize people first before they were immersed in water. They had to repent of their sins. They had to choose, I'm not going to live that way anymore. I'm going to change the way that I think so that I change the way that I live. And once the people decided to repent of their sins, we find them confessing their sins. In verse number 5, John would immerse them in the waters of the Jordan. Can you see how John was preparing the way for Jesus? What was the purpose of John's baptism according to Mark chapter 1 and verse 4? It was for unto the forgiveness of sins. 
Back in this time, the Jews had ceremonial washings, but those ceremonial washings really don't find a parallel in John's baptism. John's baptism is a lot different than that. He's bringing something new. A message that says, repent of your sin and be immersed in water for the forgiveness of your sins. His preaching is preparing the way for Jesus' preaching. His baptism is preparing the way for Jesus' baptism. How do we know that? Well, whenever we go to Acts chapter 2 and verse number 38, for instance, Peter's standing before thousands of Jews on the day of Pentecost. What does he tell them to do? He's telling them, you're the ones who have taken Jesus by lawless hands and crucified Him. That message cut them to their heart, and they cried out, men and brethren, what shall we do? And Peter tells them what to do. Repent. What was John's baptism? A baptism of repentance. He says, repent and be baptized. Every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ. And what's the purpose? For the forgiveness of your sins. And here's one of the main differences between John's baptism and Jesus' baptism. He says, you will receive the gift of of the Holy Spirit. But when you compare Acts 2.38 with Mark chapter 1 and verse 4, can't you see how he's preparing the way for Jesus? His teaching prepares the way for Jesus' teaching. Him calling on people to repent prepares the way for Jesus to call on people to repent. Him baptizing individuals, immersing them in water for the forgiveness of their sins prepares the way for Jesus to call on people to be baptized, to be immersed in water for the forgiveness of their sins. He exemplified a very powerful ministry where He was proclaiming and He was baptizing a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And you see in verse number 5 that His powerful ministry had a very powerful response. He was very popular. Verse 5, all the country of Judea, which was the surrounding region. He says all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to Him and were being baptized by Him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. John the Baptist exemplified, demonstrated a powerful ministry that had very, very powerful results. What happens whenever we look at John the Baptist's ministry? He prepares us for Jesus. Whenever we see John proclaiming repentance and baptism, and we go over to Acts chapter 2, and we see Peter proclaiming repentance and baptism for the forgiveness of sins, we're able to see that's, that's what I need to do. That's what I need to submit my life to. I need to be like the people who are responding to John, who are repenting of their sin, confessing their sin, being baptized for the forgiveness of of their sins. John's baptism points us to Jesus' baptism. His teaching points us to Jesus' teaching, a baptism and a teaching that we are to submit ourselves to. He prepares the way for the Lord in our lives. Number four, the life of John the Baptist was defined by great simplicity. It's what you would expect for somebody living out in the wilderness, living out in an uninhabited place. Notice that John didn't wear the fanciest clothing. The Bible says in verse number 6 that he was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist. John didn't have to have a luxurious gourmet dinner every single night. Now notice that his diet consisted of locusts and wild honey according to verse 6. He didn't live in a big mansion. He didn't live in a big palace. No, he lived in the wilderness. 
and lived off the land, living in an uninhabited place somewhere along the Jordan River. His life was defined by simplicity. I think that's a good reminder for us. You don't have to have the most expensive clothes in order to serve the Lord. You don't have to have a steak dinner every single night to be the person who God wants you to be. You don't have to live in a palace. You don't have to drive the nicest car in order to make a difference in people's lives. We see that in the example of John the Baptist. Not that it's wrong to have those things. It's not inherently sinful or inherently wrong to have a nice car or nice clothes or to eat nice food on occasions. But from John we learn that's not the emphasis. His life was defined by great simplicity. A simplicity that we see in the prophet Elijah. In 2 Kings chapter 1 and verse 8, as we continue to study throughout the book of Mark, eventually we'll come to Mark chapter 9, and Jesus is going to draw a comparison between Elijah and John the Baptist. We won't work through that right now. We'll save that for a later date. What I find to be most important, and what I find to be most compelling about the life and ministry of John the Baptist, is that he was one who pointed to Jesus in everything that he did. He didn't point people to himself. He pointed people to Jesus. Can you imagine the temptation? All of these people, from all of Judea and all of Jerusalem, are coming out to him. They're coming out to hear John preach. They're coming out to repent of their sin and confess their sins to John. To be baptized by John in the Jordan River. Wouldn't it be tempting for John to draw those people to himself? Wouldn't it be tempting for John to create a following? To have all of these people and they're going to be my disciples and I'm going to point them to how great I am? Is that what John did? No, John didn't point people to himself. He pointed people to Jesus. What Mark tells us about John's message reveals that to us in verse number 7. Notice he preached saying, after me. Oh no, it's, it's, it's not about me. It's not about me standing before you right now. But listen, it's about the one who's coming after me. Well, what do I need to know, John, about the one who's coming after you? He says, here's what you need to know. After me comes he who is mightier than I. But John, you're mighty. We want to come and hear you preach. We want to be baptized by you. No, listen, after me there's coming someone and he's so much mightier than I am. He's so much greater than I am. He's so much stronger than I am. Well, how much mightier are we talking about here? He says, verse 7, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. Back in this time, different rabbis, different teachers had students called disciples. And those disciples were required to do everything that their masters wanted them to do to serve them in every single way except for one. There was one exception, one thing that disciples were not forced to do. Do you know what it was? To stoop down, untie their master's sandals, and take their shoes off. That was a job that was reserved for a slave. It was a job that was reserved for a servant. What does John the Baptist do? He says, after me, there's coming someone who's so much mightier than I am. And let me tell you how mighty he is. I'm not even worthy to bow down in front of him. He's so. Well, what did we say about John just a few minutes ago? Among those born of women, there's nobody greater than John. John didn't view himself that way. 
He said, I'm not even worthy to stoop down at this man's feet, this one who's coming after me. I'm not worthy to untie the, the straps of his sandals and remove his seat. John places himself below a servant. He talks about his baptism compared with Jesus' baptism. John was only capable of baptizing people with water. But he says the one coming after me is going to be capable of baptizing people with the Holy Spirit, which he did. When you go to Acts chapter 2 or Acts chapter 10, on the day of Pentecost or when Cornelius' household was converted and they were the first Gentiles added to the church, you see Jesus pouring out this immersion of the Holy Spirit, something that John the Baptist would not have been capable of. John the Baptist doesn't point people to himself. He doesn't point people to another individual. He points individuals to Jesus. What about us? As we live our lives on a daily basis, do we spend a lot of time trying to create a following? As we live our lives on a day-to-day -day basis, do we point to ourselves? Or do we point to Jesus? Are we content to talk about how mighty and how great we are? Or do we point people to the One who is so much mightier and greater than we are? Do we want people to bow down before us and untie our sandals and take the shoes off of our feet and serve us in that way? Or do we have a mindset that says, hey, when I look at Jesus, I'm not even worthy to do that to Him. I'm not even worthy to bow down before Jesus. I'm not worthy to untie His sandal straps and remove the sandals from His dirty feet. Do we point people to ourselves? Do we point people to celebrities? Do we point people to different techniques? Or do we point people to Jesus by the way that we live and the humility that we demonstrate? John the Baptist teaches us what it's like to show people Jesus, to prepare them, to prepare their hearts, their minds, and their lives for the coming of the Lord. It's essential to the Gospel story. John, the life, the ministry of John the Baptist. It's something that we need to spend time thinking about. Something that we need to spend time considering. It's where the Gospel begins. John is one who fulfills Old Testament Scripture written hundreds of years before him. He's the one who exemplified for us this powerful ministry. He shows us how to make a difference in the lives of other people by proclaiming and baptizing. His life is defined by simplicity, maybe something that we need to hear as Americans, and ultimately he is an individual who points to Jesus and challenges us to be people who point to Jesus. We began with this great compliment that Jesus gave to John the Baptist in Matthew chapter 11 and verse 11. Read, read it with me again. He says, Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there is arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. That's an amazing compliment. But did you know that's not the entire verse? If you read the entire verse, so that's only half of it. Matthew chapter 11 and verse 11, when you continue reading, he says, Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there's arisen no one greater than John the Baptist, yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. What is Jesus saying there? Now, Jesus doesn't deny the greatness of John. He says, there's nobody been born of women. There's not a man, woman, or child greater than John the Baptist. But Jesus wants us to tell us something about His kingdom. And He wants to tell us something about what it's like to be citizens of His kingdom. Yes, John the Baptist is great. And nobody's greater than He is. 
Yet, the one who is the least in my kingdom, Jesus says, is greater than him. That's because as Christians, as members of Jesus' kingdom, we are able to experience things that John the Baptist only pointed to. Under the new covenant that's been established in the blood of Jesus, we are able to experience spiritual blessings that John the Baptist wasn't able to experience. Blessings that perhaps he would have only dreamed about. Tonight, we have the opportunity to claim a relationship that John pointed towards. Tonight, we have the opportunity to have something greater than he ever imagined all spiritual blessings that are found in Christ. John the Baptist demonstrates for us the importance of repentance and baptism. Baptism for the forgiveness of sins. Maybe that's a step that you need to take tonight. To take that step in faith. To say, I'm not going to be who I was yesterday. I'm not going to be who I was earlier today. I'm going to change the way that I live. And I'm going to follow Jesus into the waters of baptism where my sins are washed away. John the Baptist teaches us also the importance of confessing our sins. Oftentimes we want to keep our sins a secret, don't we? We want to conceal those things from people around us. Maybe it's the case that you're struggling with some kind of sin. And you need encouragement. You need us to pray for you in order to fight against it, in order to overcome it. We would love to assist you in any way that we can as together we stand and sing the song of invitation.